This is Airing Pain, the programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for people with pain, our families, friends and healthcare professionals through campaigns, these podcasts, literature, research projects and its helpline. This edition has been funded by the footwear retailer Shoe, which is highly appropriate because it's about foot pain. Gordon Hendry is a podiatrist and a lecturer in musculoskeletal rehabilitation with the Musculoskeletal Health Research Group at Glasgow Caledonian University. The group collaborated with the University of Aberdeen's Epidemiology Centre to present a foot pain workshop at the 2015 British Pain Society's annual scientific meeting. Now, I suppose I take my feet for granted, even though I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, they're probably the most used and pressurised part of my body. You would be pretty correct in saying that, actually. Um, there is a quote out there, I think it was Socrates, if your feet hurt, you hurt all over. And there's this idea now that um, the foot being the, the key load-bearing structure of, of the body um, that's, that's subject to a lot of high stresses and strains. We know from epidemiological research that um, there's probably about 10% of the adult population that will have disabling foot pain disabling being that for at least a day and a month they'll be unable to perform a task due to the, the, the level of foot pain. We know that far less seek care for that disabling foot pain and we don't really understand why that is. It's either people aren't aware of what help they can get or they just carry on regardless and they, they power through or they perhaps self-manage to varying degrees of, of success. From my own professional background maybe we're at fault slightly in that I think if you asked everyone at this conference what a podiatrist is, probably very small percentages would be able to tell you what they are and what they do. So that, that relative to maybe physiotherapy, which is very well known by comparison. Okay, what's a podiatrist? What does he <laughs> or she do? Yeah, I'd left the door open for that. Well, I suppose in, in terms of mechanical foot pain, a podiatrist is um, an allied health professional that will be capable of performing um, a diagnosis to determine the cause of your foot pain and apply non-medical conservative management strategies to relieve that foot pain. Podiatrists also have many, many other roles related to um, diabetic foot care, for example. Um, foot ulceration is a, a key problem, but in terms of foot pain, from my perspective, the role is very much based around mechanical conservative therapies for improving posture and functions such as normal human ambulation walking. Gordon Hendry. So who gets foot pain and why do they get it? Jodie Ryskowski of Glasgow Caledonian University. In general, we see women typically get more foot pain. Uh, in general, people who are older tend to get more foot pain. In general, people who've made poor footwear choices, <laughs> and some of that still is questionable, um, tend to have more foot pain so you the, the poor footwear choices might be women with high heels <laughs> some studies say that that is a problem other studies say that's not a problem and a lot of that is because we ask them when they have foot pain what shoes did you wear so they think of all the bad things it's called a recall bias you think of all the bad things and like the things you feel guilty about oh maybe I shouldn't have worn heels 16 hours a day when I was 20 so, so other than wearing high heels which 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 I don't <laughs> what can cause foot pain? 
we think of it as being a loading issue. So how you're putting force onto the foot, wearing ill-fitting shoes may play a role or wearing high heels, that may play a role. With regard to how does it arise, you know, we don't have good answers because you can look at, you know, people say, oh, you can't run all the time, but then you go to some marathoner and you're like, but they're putting in hundreds of miles a week, but they don't have foot pain and I can't run for three miles without doing it. And so somehow, you know, there's clearly somebody's doing something different, but we just don't have a good understanding of what that something is that they're doing to be able to allow them to run without pain or what they're doing that brings on foot pain when they run. I think the answer is we're, we're all built differently. Yes, <laughs> I do think that there's something to do with that. <laughs> we would expect that the majority of patients coming to a podiatry service, an NHS podiatry service, they would have foot pain and the goal would be to manage that, that foot pain. But there are some situations where there is uh, pain higher up in the, the kinetic chain, so whether it be back pain, knee pain, where there is some evidence to suggest that uh, perhaps realigning the foot can, can result in benefit. So I know from um, colleagues that I, I, I know from Australia have used foot orthoses, so that's um, to you and I would be an insole, and the insole has been used to correct foot posture to try and relieve back pain that has been supposedly caused by some disruption to the, the kinetic chain. Also, foot orthoses have, have been known to be used for relief of knee pain, and, and there is a, a specific mechanical target that looks as if it could be modified by using a foot orthotic, and you're effectively changing the direction of a force going through the knee joint to prevent further deterioration in terms of osteoarthritis and relieve pain. You mentioned the term realigning the foot. Yes. What do you mean? The foot sits on the bottom of my leg and it points forward. Yes, that's right. Well, um, compared to the knee joint, which is effectively a single hinge, the foot is a far more complex structure. So you've actually got 33 joints in the foot. Uh, so in terms of adequately and concisely describing realignment, it is actually very difficult. But if you take the heel bone and you look at it from behind, one of the key movements of that heel bone, so if you think about it moving in a clockwise or anti-clockwise rotation when you're walking, there is some evidence suggesting that extremes of that rotation in either direction might result in development of foot pain via various different um, uh, tissue stresses and strains. And the idea is that by building up on one side of the heel bone, we can alter that rotation and, and bring the big hand closer to the, tw the 12 o'clock position. That's Gordon Henry of Glasgow Caledonian University, which, as I mentioned, is collaborating with the University of Aberdeen's Epidemiology Centre, where Catherine Martin's a lecturer. I lead a program on physical activity research, which is um, part of the rheumatic and musculoskeletal program. And I'm interested in understanding and exploring the patterns and prevalence of physical activity and actually sedentary behavior among older adults as well as those who have rheumatic and musculoskeletal conditions. Additionally, I'm interested in developing um, theory-based interventions, behavioral interventions, to increase individuals um, participating in physical activity, as well as finding ways in which we can support individuals who want to be more active um, in maintaining their physical activity um, through, through different transitional periods in, in their life. Physical activity is one of the big issues faced 
by people with chronic pain conditions. It is. And physical activity is a wonderful way where individuals who have chronic pain or different pain as a result of other conditions can actually manage their symptoms, um, and, and especially fatigue as being another symptom. Unfortunately, individuals with chronic pain face this cycle. It's a sort of a fear, avoidance, pain, and um, then a continuation where they just keep not engaging in physical activity. So um, it's important to break that cycle and have individuals engage so that they can really manage their symptoms well. The cycle being, I have pain. If I exercise, it will make me worse. So I, I exercise even less, therefore my pain gets Increased. worse right. and it spirals. That's right. And there's a deconditioning element as well in that. Um, so you're absolutely right where individuals um, are fearful of pain and they avoid that um, activity that they believe might cause them pain. So in, in that then individuals can become deconditioned if they stop being physically active, which brings on more pain and so forth. So how do you break that circle? That's a really great question, and one in which I think um, many of us uh, are interested in really understanding and researching further. I think that it's complex, um, and individuals, even with it, without chronic pain, um, face many different barriers to being physically active and, and getting off their sofa and stop watching television. You see, the biggest thing that's made me start exercising, I have chronic pain, I have fibromyalgia, but the biggest thing that has got me off my backside is being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Interesting. It's the fright. Of what would happen with that additional condition. Yeah, yeah. And have you found that it has improved your fibromyalgia symptoms? Less fatigue, less pain? Now I've turned the interview on to you, mm. Paul. It has, actually. Uh, I still pay for it. Sure. Overdoing it. And Overdoing it, yes. yeah, yeah. Activity pacing it tends to be a type of management strategy that is often encouraged by clinicians like occupational therapists or physiotherapists, even podiatrists, um, where individuals are encouraged to sort of adopt a, a strategy where they don't overexert, so they're doing enough where they're getting themselves to engage in more activity, but up to a threshold where they know if they cross that threshold, they will induce pain. So it's um, finding a right balance um, and pacing oneself in, into doing activity. And so if one can um, adopt an activity pacing strategy, uh, oftentimes that might help. The evidence is, is lacking, especially in the foot pain um, area. So often in public health and clinicians will say the simplest way to get active and is to get out and go walking. It's usually very low impact. It's easy to do. Individuals can simply go out their door and walk. But for individuals with foot pain, I think that this is a, a very sort of complex and uh, not an easy activity to do because it causes pain. And so um, not everyone has access to swimming pool, which is recommended for a lot of adults, especially those with um, chronic pain and foot pain in particular. Um, so access to swimming pools and um, it's not always easy. So walking is, is one of those activities that um, for many people without foot pain, easy to do, but if you have foot pain, you may not be as uh, inclined to do. And it's incredibly easy to give advice to somebody who doesn't walk, who doesn't do any exercise, but actually putting yourself into that person's mindset. Or shoes. 
or shoes <laughs> it's, it's quite difficult yes I think so I think um, foot pain is complex in that there are a lot of different etiologies and ways in which a person may have foot pain sometimes it's brought on by trauma and you know over time goes away uh, the natural history of foot pain is not very well understood so once someone has started to develop foot pain what sort of goes on at the uh, soft tissue or even in the bone in the joint, that's not very well known. And spontaneous resolution or um, how things resolve even without intervention or any sort of you know, clinical um, uh, intervention is still not, not known. But if you don't have that knowledge about how things progress and you say to someone, yes, just go get out and walk, I think that can be, be complex and, and hard for that person. There's an, an awful lot of risk factors associated with foot pain. So the obvious ones are obesity, lack of physical activity, aging just generally um, with uh, loss of skeletal muscle and that kind of thing. And footwear is the big one as well, poor footwear. So one of the key points of, of the talk today will be that people tend to go to a podiatrist, say, with a bunion. That's, that's one of the most common problems. And they'll go with a bunion and they'll say, okay, well, I'm having some problems with this. And there does appear to be a lack of understanding that a podiatrist, that they're there for relief and get you back on your feet and get you doing what you what you want to be doing. Some people think that a podiatrist is maybe going to get the hammer and chisel out and uh, make drastic changes and make that toe nice and straight again. It's just not going to happen. So I suppose the key thing about what we try and do is it's managing the whole person. It's the, you know, if weight is a problem, weight loss would be a, a, a target, whether that be through exercise or, or um, controlled meal portions, whatever. There's certainly lots of exercises that people can do. So self-management is becoming very important. That's the point that it's just providing an insole or a mechanical device in most cases won't be a cure-all. It's just part of something that is going to be a, an overall management package that we can advise upon. What is a bunion? I've seen a bunion. So what is it? The traditional thought behind a bunion was that it was a bursa overlying um, the big toe joint. The technical term that we use is um, hallux abductovalgus, and that's just a bit long-winded. And it's, in very basic terms, it's when the, the great toe let's say on the left foot, deviates towards the left-hand side even further, leaving you with a, a bony prominence that can then cause a whole load of other problems. So instead of load going through your big toe, it tends to move to the smaller toes and they can't withstand those forces and they can tend to claw and you get high pressure areas and areas of friction. And particularly at that bony prominence, that becomes very problematic with shoes, particularly for females as well who want to wear pointy, narrow, dolly shoes, um, and it can become very uncomfortable. And a lot of people, it's not painful, so to throw that curveball out there, and it's just an aesthetic issue, but that tends to be the people that have got good accommodative footwear that otherwise keep fitting well and, and that kind of thing. How important is the big toe? Do you know, I've got some friends that would actually laugh at that because they always wind me up as a podiatrist and say, ah, oh, you, know, you don't need toes, um, you know, it's, they just seem pointless. You do need toes, absolutely. The key thing I would say is that if you've ever come across a diabetic patient who, for various reasons, has, has ended up having a toe amputated, one of the main issues there is because they lose the ability to roll off of that toe, you've got five toes worth of stress and strain going through four remaining toes. So therefore they can't withstand that and then further problems occur. 
and uh, in, in terms of deterioration of overall foot function. So toes are very vital and a good way to think about it is if your foot was just a solid block with toes attached, your foot would be rolling off of that solid block and there would be incredibly high areas of pressure where you're rolling off. But the extension of having toes there means you've got these little flexible structures that have got muscles that can control both above and below to, to push down and withstand those forces. So yes, they are very important and um, we do need them to, to walk properly. Which brings us neatly to the mechanics of walking. Jody Riskowski. Most of my area has been around foot pain. And so we're looking at what are appropriate loading strategies. So when you walk, how is it you're actually putting weight onto the foot and what's a good amount of weight and what's a bad amount of weight? And then how many times are you doing that? So again, somebody who walks a lot is doing that a lot. And somebody who doesn't walk a lot is doing that less. And so we're looking at, so what are these cumulative loading and how does that then influence pain trajectory? Hang on, you're losing me now. When I walk, <laughs> when I, walk I, I put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> yes, and how do you do that? What lands on the I'm, ground first? I have no idea. I've never thought about it. <laughs> It's my heel first, and then it follows through onto the ball of my foot. But it's something I, I don't have to think about, is yeah. it? But do you have pe- foot pain? No, I don't. But, <laughs> but, but, but I have knee pain. Ah, so even those people walk differently and will modify how they walk at the foot level to handle you know, how the force is then transmitted up to the knee. Um, and so there are a lot of foot sort of interventions and therapies that are actually acting to modify the knee. And when you have foot pain, again, you're going to walk differently. So if you have pain in the heel, you generally won't always walk with the heel touching down first. You'll walk more with the arch touching down first and the the forefoot, the ball of the foot. But you still need some bit of loading on the heel. So you need to have a normal sort of gait strategy where the heel loads. But, you know, you're also bringing down the midfoot and the forefoot as well. Versus if somebody has forefoot pain, they're not going to push as much. So their gait speed, their walking speed will be lower. And how do you then act to have an intervention, um, an orthotic type of intervention and or manual muscle massage or trigger point release? What does that actually do to help relieve some of the pressure and tension that's felt during walking? What I've noticed with my knee pain, which which is not a chronic condition, I'm hoping it will go <laughs> after physiotherapy in a couple of weeks' time, but I've had it for a couple of weeks. What I've noticed is my walking has changed completely. I'm putting much more weight onto the good leg mm-hmm. and altering my posture. That's what you're talking about. Everything is linked. Yeah. And noticing, you know, there's a song, something like, you know, the, the thigh bones connected to the leg bone, connected to the hip bone, you know. I think sometimes we forget that as clinicians or as researchers and, you know, like my area is the foot, but actually the foot's connected to the ankle, which is connected to the, you know, tibia, your sort of shank, your calf, which connects to the knee and the hip. And, you know, seeing the whole piece together, it's hard, it's complex. <laughs> complex indeed. Now, as I record this edition of Airing Pain, the 2015 Rugby World Cup is in full swing and, as with any sport played at the top level, the science and expertise to get and maintain those elite athletes' bodies in top shape never ceases to amaze me. So, can anything be learned from how the bodies of the super-fit are managed to help those of the super-unfit? 
Well, Jody Ryskovsky was an elite athlete in the United States until an accident ended that side of her career. Since then, she's worked with people right across the fitness spectrum, from Olympic athletes to those who may do little or no exercise as a result of chronic pain. Some people, on, on both ends of the spectrum, if you will, of, of physical activity and physical function, are like, but if I just push through it, you know, I know that if I just continue to do it, you know, and again, what they're continuing to do might not actually be something that helps or may lead to other further complications. And then there's the people on the other end that are like, I can't do it because it hurts. You know, I can't do things where you go, well, actually, it's a balance of, you know, there's always, when you start, when you have pain, you know, you want to limit that pain, of course, but there's always, you know, like if you're doing something new, you can get, you know, new types of pain, muscle that's going to, you know, that hasn't been used before might actually then become painful. It's just a delayed onset muscle soreness, DOMS, um, and, and that's a normal part of, you know, sort of developing in a skill or activity or in your day-to-day -day activities. So if you haven't, for example, cycled for a long time, yeah, your muscles might hurt the next day, but it's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing that you went through that. Um, so there is, you know, having that understanding of what is pain and what does it actually tell you about what's happening within the body. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to know. <laughs> I mean, one thing with people with chronic pain who have been physically fit at some point in their life, trying to get back to that is a huge obstacle because they will never get back to that. Mm -hmm. How do you change somebody's expectations yeah and we were just having this conversation about what is the sort of the mental health side of chronic pain and of pain in general and and that goes right alongside even just with aging and, and again working with athletes you watch athletes that at some point no matter what there's always going to be a drop off in performance and you see it along the spectrum you know with masters athletes that train and train and train there's always going to be a drop with aging and and it is work the biggest part they think oh I just need to train harder I just need to do this more I just need to, you know and it's again going into the cycle where that actually is not the healthy thing to do um, but it is working with the mind and saying well what are reasonable expectations with regard to again athletes or with regard to just general population of what are reasonable expectations in terms of the amount of activity that you should be doing and one thing we talk about is activity pacing so how much activity you should be doing at one particular set of time, and then rest is important. <laughs> you know, taking whatever proper, appropriate rest is needed, not prolonged rest, <laughs> but doing the right amount of activity at the right sort of bite-sized moments. And that's, I think, an important area to start looking at. We have a lot of ways to measure activity. Most people who have a smartphone have capabilities of measuring activity. But the challenge is, you know, again, like, how do you get the right bite-sized activity and should your smartphone then be saying hey, wait a minute take a rest or giving you the oh wait a minute you should be doing something right now <laughs> and so you know how can you sort of look at activity pacing with individuals with chronic pain and and then going again working with the mindset of it what is appropriate and like how, how do you handle what limitations you may have as a part of your disease or condition I broke my back when I was 17, so I was a national level athlete in the U.S. To the next day, not being able to get out of bed, right? <laughs> you know, and how do you deal with that mentally? And I think that needs to come right alongside with chronic conditions is the, the mental side of it. And, you know, it's often, I think, sort of pushed under the rug or, 
you know, you want to be brave and you don't need that piece, but you actually, most people do need that piece of how do you develop resiliency when you have those types of conditions or you have something that's a chronic condition, you know, that you're going to have for the rest of your life. <laughs> An elite athlete, say a marathon runner, you often hear the term going through the pain barrier as if that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. At the other end, my end, if you like, that is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So you having been there and having broken your back, how did you adjust your mind? I mean, I went through the same thing probably everyone would do. It's like, okay, so I can't use this. I'm going to transfer and I'm going to go all out in something else. So when I was doing my rehab, we did like these arm ergometers. So that's just a cycling with their arms. And, and I remember some of the therapists saying, you know, again to the coaches, like she went all out, like she's going to be hurting tomorrow because nobody was telling me, you know, that's enough. They were just say, here's what you should do. And so I did that. But then I thought, but I need to do a little bit more because I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fit. I should be able to, you know, that's where we get into. So should a smartphone or should there be some external, you know, monitoring system within it that lets you know what these sort of appropriate amounts of activity are and, and, and how you should be sort of working with what you should be doing and should not be doing. I have a smartphone app and I have one of these things on my app, which I've taken off at the moment, which tells me that I must walk 10,000 paces a day. Yes. It doesn't tell me, well, some people should walk that, but actually you'd be better off with 1,000 today mm -hmm. and maybe 5,000 tomorrow. Mm -hmm. How do you set that limit? You know, that's the thing that we need research for because we don't know and we don't know exactly how those limits should be applied and should be applied across conditions or across different populations so you know somebody that comes in and is very fit and active prior to some either traumatic condition or a new onset those are going to be different than somebody who's not as fit and active coming in and then how do you sort of get them to be a little bit more fit and active whereas the individual that was already active how do you then say here's what a sort of lesser degree of activity might be for now at least to get you through a flare-up condition or an ideally short acute period where you just need to get, as they say, over the hump um, and back to a, a place where you're more in that normal state for you. I half-jokingly said to the physiotherapist who's working on my knee, if I was an elite athlete, I'd have a team of 12 people around me. If I was a racehorse, I'd be shot. <laughs> or put out a stud, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> That was Jody Riskowski of Glasgow Caledonian University. I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download any edition of Airing Pain, and this is number 73, would you believe, videos we've produced for our Barriers to Self-Management in Primary Care Research project, resources and information from our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, going back to the start of this edition of Airing Pain, you recall that I was speaking with podiatrist Gordon Hendry as he was preparing to run a workshop at the British Pain Society annual scientific meeting. So what was he about to tell them? I'll certainly be highlighting that we don't know everything yet. Um, there's a lot of work still ongoing. It does appear that foot pain appears to be 
a problem that is managed reasonably well, but it could certainly be improved substantially. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about today is the fact that a lot of foot problems have these horrible umbrella terms. So one of the obvious ones is heel pain. Now, heel pain can be 50 different things um, in terms of actually what's going on beneath the skin when you get down to, to cellular level. And the management strategies will have varying degrees of success based on what actual problem there is. But the main focus will be trying to give the, the, the wider audience um, a greater perspective about what podiatrists try to do. And it's very much about altering mechanics in the foot and uh, centered on, on tissue stress theory, which is if there is a threshold by which a kind of tissue starts to damage and becomes inflamed and painful, there must be an element of prevention possible so, so we can prevent that damage from taking place and, and relieving pain by proxy almost indirectly.